It's my pleasure to welcome you to the 23rd of January 2024 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast, where we connect you to the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead. I'm your host, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of Greenwich, Connecticut, and as always, it's my pleasure to welcome you. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Alexander Affiliates, Eastern Neurologic Services of New York, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Coming up on today's show... You'll hear my conversation with John Bridge, a research assistant to the Greenwich Historical Society. On Greenwich and the Gilded Age, we'll take you to McCord Cottage in Belhaven and McCord Mausoleum in Putnam St. Mary's Cemetery. You'll hear about the burning down of the original town hall in Greenwich in 1874 after Belhaven was christened, quote-unquote, in early 1884. An anonymous resident criticized the name later in November. I'll also share with you an announcement of the ground breaking uh, for the construction of the Pickwick Arms Hotel. You've come to the right place to learn about the history of Greenwich, Connecticut. We'll have all this and more as our history continues to unfold. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Support is made possible by... A landscape architecture firm with an optimistic view of the future, Alexander Affiliates is a professional landscape architectural firm specializing in designing and planning visually appealing, functional, and environmentally responsible outdoor spaces for residential and commercial developments. From backyard perennial garden preparation to regional coastal planning, we have you covered. In addition, we serve a global clientele that has brought in a lot of business for us through word-of-mouth referrals. Some of Alexander Affiliates' clients include construction companies, land and property developers, government offices, engineering companies, geographers, and soil samplers. Its mission is simple. Instead of focusing on saving the planet, let's concentrate on thriving together. In business since 1980, you can learn more about Alexander Affiliates by going online to alexanderaffiliates.com. Com. Call 203-869-8632. Its mailing address is P.O. Box 711, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06836. Eastern Neurological Services of New York offers comprehensive neurologic diagnoses and therapeutic services. Dr. Judy Gao, MD, a top New York neurologist, specializes in dynamic treatment of neurological diseases, neurorehabilitation, and physical therapy. With convenient locations in New York City and a multilingual staff, Eastern Neurological Services offers a wide array of treatments for neurological disorders, including general neurological consultations, on-site diagnostic testing, and physical and neurocognitive therapy. Now, the most trusted platform for medical products you need is available for you at healthsitepro.com. Shop online for the best in preventative medicine and health maintenance. These products are used by Dr. Gao and her family, and if they're good enough for them, well, they're good enough for you as well. Visit easternneurologic.com or call 212-889-6540 or 212-227-6500. 
Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203 485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor, his Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. On one of my recent shows, I reported to you that there was a petition back in the early 20th century being circulated around town banning Sunday movies. Uh, <laughs> and um, I wanted to follow up with that with, uh, with more. The following that I'm going to read to you is a letter that was uh, published in the, let me see, yes, in the Greenwich News and Graphic on September 12th, 1919. And it was written by the senior pastor of the Second Congregational Church, and that would be Oliver Huckle. I have had so many people say to me, this is Oliver Huckle, since my return to Greenwich a few days ago, quote, I am so sorry that the Sunday movies got into Greenwich. I wish something could be done to stop it. I will, it will do the town no good, unquote. I sympathize, continues Reverend Huckle, with these remarks, and I believe that the feeling is widespread and ought to be fairly considered. The serious people of Greenwich have not only the right, but the duty of speaking their minds on this question, especially the fathers and mothers and teachers of children. They have a great deal at stake, both for the present and the future. We want a town where conditions are favorable for the upbringing of our children, a community without constant temptations to unwholesome recreations. Such unwholesome conditions are a great asset to a residential town. It is true that such things may be allowed in great congested industrial cities that that are entirely unnecessary and unwise in an exceptional residential town such as Greenwich. Our community is better without a commercialized Sunday. It will be an asset to the worth and real value of Greenwich to keep it as free as possible from unwholesome conditions, even in amusements. I have in mind Montclair, New Jersey, where I have just been recently visiting. It is a splendid town, somewhat larger than Greenwich, but with the same kind of sturdy, progressive people. It is a community that believes in the best, and it gets it. It has resolutely kept our, uh, out Sunday movies and is all the better for its stand. Sunday movies is a bigger question than mere Sunday movies. The larger question is, shall Sunday be commercialized? It is not whether we may allow an occasional Sunday evening concert for charity or an occasional Sunday afternoon tournament for the benefit of the Red Cross. This is entirely different from allowing constant concerts, games, and other public amusements for money-making purposes, for the commercial exploitation of the day in the way of a regular continental Sunday. We do not want a Puritan Sunday. Far from it, we believe in a reasonable and happy Sunday. Sunday was made for man for his rest and worship, for his higher life. It forbids work except works of necessity and mercy. It invites communal worship for thinking together on the deepest questions of life. It commends wholesome recreations, and among such recreations, many would like to include open libraries, art galleries, music in the parks, and amateur games, even amateur baseball, tennis, and golf. The point is that we must guard against is the invasion of the money exploiter who wants to use Sunday to make money, to stimulate 
the amusement side, and commercialize the day. Of course, the plea is put forward by the moneymakers that the recreation is for the people, but the people have that pleasure six days a week, afternoons and evenings, with some extras. Why invade Sunday? Working men now knock off at half past four every day and have half Saturdays besides. They have all the opportunities to attend that is necessary. The children have more than enough. The law only gives the circus two or three days in a town because of the money drain. Why would the movies be allowed seven days a week to drain the public and especially the children of the poor? We have no quarrel with movies. We have no objection to them if they are the right kind and in the right place and time. They can be both entertaining and educational, but we do object to movies on Sunday as commercializing the day. This is the point. This Sunday movie is foisted upon us by exploiters for money-making purposes. The necessary legislation was foisted upon the state by the same money-maker making exploiters. Sorry. If Sunday movies are allowed, how long will it be before all kinds of Sunday concerts at the Pickwick, the Town Hall, and the Armory? Why not Sunday night dances and uh, and clubs? Why not open saloons and open stores on Sunday, if the rule be what some people might desire? Where shall we stop? The safe and sound principle is to stop the commercializing of the day in every way possible. I am therefore heartily in favor of the protest and petition against the Sunday movie in Greenwich, which is now being circulated among the people and largely signed. It opposes the Sunday movie on the ground of the commercial exploitation of the day, and on the ground of such an innovation being both necessary and unwise in the residence town of Greenwich. I feel that this position is reasonable and will commend itself to a large portion of our community, very truly yours, Oliver Huckle. On Tuesday, September 16, year 1919, the Portchester, New York Daily Item reported news of a new hotel for Greenwich, Connecticut. And what was that hotel? Well, it was the one and only Pickwick Arms. And the story goes as follows. Ground was broken last week for the new $1 million Pickwick Arms, which is being erected on the site of the old Lennox House at the corner of Greenwich Avenue and Post Road. Russell A. Cowles, who established the Pickwick in several years ago, will own and operate the new hotel. The contract for the designing and a construction of which has been awarded to the Fred F. French Company. The structure will follow the old English type of architecture. The outside walls will be the clinker brick and native fieldstone, while the roof will be made of heavy slate. There will be a small amount of half-timber over gray stucco below some of the eaves. Hugo F. Huber, the noted interior decorated will personally supervise the task of decorating the interior of the hotel, including the selection of the furniture and draperies. It is believed that the building will be ready for use in early summer. In order to finance the undertaking, the Greenwich Trust Company has underwritten a $350,000 issue of 6% first mortgage serial bonds, which will soon be offered to the public at a little below par.
The Greenwich Historical Society's library and archives consists of over 1,300 linear feet of personal papers, manuscripts, organizational records, photographic materials, printed works such as histories, genealogies, catalogs, maps, atlases, so much more. I had the pleasure of stopping by the library and archives and spending a few moments with John Bridge. He is the research assistant to the Greenwich Historical Society. Here's our conversation. John, thank you very much for meeting with me here in the Library and Archives of the Greenwich Historical Society. Tell us about yourself and about your connection to Greenwich. I, uh, well, again, my name is John Bridge. I was born here. My father was born here. My grandfather uh, emigrated from Ireland to Greenwich in 1890. My grandmother and my mother was uh, a Griswold, so she is from a long history in Connecticut. Oh, yes. From the uh, Michael Griswold branch. so that's my history. Uh, so I've lived here most of my life, and I was entering into retirement and saw an ad for employment here at the Historical Society, and I took it. Well, good for you, and we are very, very glad to, um, uh, to have you. Thank you very much. Uh, you are the, uh, the researcher here? Yep. Yes, I am. I work for Christopher Shields. Yes, very good. Now, the Historical Society offers research services, and I'm assuming, of course, that you would be a part of that. So if you would, um, uh, talk to us a bit about that. Yeah, please. Okay. Uh, Well, on our website, I'll say it out loud, Mm GreenwichHistoryOneWord.org, there is a research services uh, page. Uh, If you click on that, you can click on submitting a request, and you can put your request right online. We have some... Simple questions about what the nature of your request would be and a little data about yourself, and then you send it off. Christopher receives that and then um, parses out what I need to do from that. Talk to us or talk us through the research process. So let's say, well, you know, I've contacted you actually, um, but, you know, we'll just say anybody in the public out there that's listening and has a research interest and they need your um, your help. What would they, what could they expect from you? Well, they could call me directly. Uh, I do have a phone number that uh, I'm sure you'll give out. <clears throat> and what I do is uh, suss out exactly what it is you're looking for. It could be about your family, about your house, your location, the history of your neighborhood. Uh, or it could be anything else about Greenwich history. That's what we focus on. Mm-hmm. And um, together, we will figure out if we have any information here that might be pertinent to your research. Okay. All right. Very good. So it has to be about Greenwich history. Uh, obviously. Well, yeah, generally, yes. You know, it is the Greenwich <laughs> Historical Society, right? So, <laughs> all right. Um, all right. Now, uh, I, I've had some very colorful, um, you know, interchanges with you as well as uh, Christopher Shields here. Um, you know, over the years and and whatnot. But I wanted to uh, get from you, if you would describe for us maybe a sampling of some of the research re- requests that, that you have received. Yes, uh, just give us a sample, maybe some of the more colorful ones, if you don't mind, um, and uh, and what it is or maybe what you didn't find. Yeah. <clears throat> Generally speaking, uh, we get uh, real estate agents who want to come in and check out the property, the historical value, mm. what buildings, more importantly, were on the property, because that figures into how they might market their property once they sell it. Uh, So that's one avenue of research. The others generally have to do with family, like my grandfather grew up here. Mm. I'd like to know more about his family, what neighborhood, where did he live? Mm. Um, So one of the colorful stories I have is actually a very recent one. Mm. Uh, A woman called and asked about her great-grandfather, who emigrated from Italy to Mm. Greenwich. Mm. And uh, I was happy to oblige. Unfortunately... Because we don't have a lot of information about him or his family mm. in our files. 
So uh, often that happens, and I will use the internet quite often to use Ancestry or any other application that might help the customer at this point mm -hmm. uh, get the information they need. And in this case, I had to almost rely on the internet just to fill in the blanks yeah. about this woman's story. And I came to find out that the great-grandfather had a family, for sure, uh, here in town, <clears throat> and he had four children, and I found out about their names and their dates of birth. And as I was researching the tentacles of that genealogy, <laughs> I came across another person in that neighborhood who had four children, hmm. same names, oh, almost the same dates. Hmm. So I had to send this to the person to say, I don't quite understand this. You have two families, same block, hmm. four people, four children, same names, different dates of birth, different countries of birth. So I'm trying to sort that out. How did that happen on a census? Yeah, that that is quite a coincidence, to um, you know, to, uh, to to say the least. You know, I want to tell you while we are um, you know conversing together uh, together on this, you know, um, on the on the Halloween show that uh, that I did, we had that ghost story about the cemetery. Um, and I have to tell you that that you in particular were extremely helpful. I mean, especially when you sent me that photograph, photograph what, that was blown up, and it showed the gravestones in the original location of that um, uh, that, that cemetery uh, that used to be over in the um, you know Field Point area. I was astounded by that, quite frankly, okay. and the other and the maps and things that that you had sent me and, and everything else. So I really want to thank you for that because mm -hmm. really I was just totally amazed, <laughs> totally. A lot of um, a lot of my listeners, I had people that actually contacted me. So every time you take the um, uh, the train. From you know Port Chester to Greenwich, there's a certain point where it's like, you know, I even have done this. It's like, okay, this is the we just passed over the exact spot of that. <laughs> I know it's strange, um, but um, but yeah, you know, people, you know, they don't they don't notice on the train. They're doing other things, um, which is um, which is fine. So really, um, you have been um, a total godsend about um, things like this, and so I'm really grateful for for you, for Christopher, everybody here for um, making not just your research services possible, but the, the outstanding results. We're learning new things about Greenwich history all the time. So as we conclude, I wanted to know if you could just summarize for us how it is that the public uh, can contact you. Uh, please go to the website. If you have a research request, you can do it that way. Or if you'd like to contact me directly, which is fine, it would be 203-869-6899, extension 21. Well, John Bridge, I want to thank you very, very much for spending a couple of minutes with me here in this wonderful library and archive. Um, my friends, uh, please, you can learn more by going to GreenwichHistory.org. And again, please uh, call 203-869-6899. So thank you so much. Mm, I'm glad to do it. Thank you. The best-kept secret in Greenwich, Connecticut is a marvelous destination with an even more extraordinary mission. Coffee for Good invites you to be a part of a magical story in a restored historic mansion that inclusively brings people together thanks to a unique nonprofit partnership between Abelis and the Second Congregational Church. When you enter the doors of the 1858 Solomon Mead House, you'll be instantly drawn to the warmth and ambiance of Coffee for Good 
at 48 Maple Avenue. Serving coffee, teas, and delectable goodies and more, Coffee for Good is a self-sustaining teaching platform that trains people with special needs who acquire the skills and self-confidence they need to thrive in the community. Voted Best Coffee Shop by the readers of Greenwich Magazine, honored with the Community Impact Leader Award by the Connecticut Restaurant Association, and now the Jack Moffley Nonprofit Leadership Award, Coffee for Good is open daily, Monday through Saturday, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. Enjoy free parking, free Wi-Fi, as well as year-round indoor and outdoor seating, a popular destination for gatherings, meetings, and a fantastic study spot, too. Coffee for Good is located at 48 Maple Avenue, behind the Second Congregational Church in the Putnam Hill National Historic District. Visit coffeeforgood.org. Radical Pots and Cooperative Hands, Catherine Choi and Clay Art Center is the current exhibit at the Greenwich Historical Society, and it is open to the public until February 4th. Featuring ceramic works and archival material drawn from Clay Art Center's collections, the exhibit features a number of Catherine Choi's dynamic genre-defining ceramic pots, presented alongside letters, photographs, and archival material that tell the story of the Clay Art Center's remarkable presence in the mid-century artistic community of New York and southwestern Connecticut. You can learn more by going to GreenwichHistory.org. And for information, call 203 869-6899. You're listening to the Greenwich Town for All Seasons Show podcast, hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead, that's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, the gateway to New England. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons Show podcast is made possible by Alexander Affiliates, Eastern Neurologic Services, Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. You know, Greenwich, Connecticut's Gilded Age was a remarkable time when wealthy Americans came to town and constructed splendid mansions, outbuildings, and designed landscapes. On today's show, our our journey is going to take us to McCord Cottage in Belhaven, one of the most spectacular Gilded Age residence parks in America, and it is made possible by Victorian Summer, the historic houses of Belhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut, by Matt Bernard, a book, by the way, which you can purchase at the museum store of the Greenwich Historical Society. The principal owner of McCord Cottage was William McCord, It was built in 1893. It was altered in 1920. Its address is 19 Bush Avenue in Belhaven, and the architect was the firm of Thorpe and Knowles. William Hewitt McCord, who lived from 1846 to 1912, was in some measure responsible for the rise of the Manhattan skyline. The firm of Post and McCord, founded in 1877, erected the steel structures of what were once the world's tallest buildings. McCord did not live to see his company raise the most famous of them, the Chrysler Building, completed in 1930, and the Empire State Building, completed the following year. But he did preside over the steel construction of the Madison Square Garden Tower, in 1905, which was raised with the rest of the old Madison Square Garden in 1925. The Metropolitan Life Insurance Tower in 1909, then the tallest building in the world, and Bankers Trust Building in 1912 with its famous pyramidal crown. 
All three buildings were once considered glories of the New York City skyline, particularly the Stanford White-designed Madison Square Garden, which, along with the Brooklyn Bridge, was often named as New York's greatest architectural wonder. Stanford White was murdered there in 1906, by the way, shot by his lover's husband. The first decade of the 20th century was an era of labor unrest, and McCord's company received a stiff dose of it when iron workers went on strike late in 1905. Post and Bicord's non-union workmen were frequently attacked, sometimes with dynamite, and in one case with ammonia splashed in the face. A suspicious number of serious accidents, some fatal, attended the building of the B. Altman department store on Fifth Avenue that year. Two men were caught trying to blow up another Post and Bicord worksite. Quote, we have been doing business at the risk of life and limb, unquote, said William C. Post, a son of the co-founder. Quote, there have been 65 assaults in all, and we have had to have police to guard our men, unquote. McCord's refuge was his shingle-style cottage at 19 Bush Avenue, with its five acres of gardens, fruit trees, and lawn. McCord's choice of New Yorkers Alfred H. Thorpe, who lived from 1843 to 1917, and Wilbur S. Knowles, who lived from 1857 to 1944, befits a wealthy man who knew his architects. Early in his career, Thorpe helped Edward Tuckerman Potter design Mark Twain's picturesque Gothic house in Hartford, where Twain wrote The Adventures of Tom Sawyer and The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. The house still stands and is a popular tourist attraction. Thorpe was extremely well-educated, the sixth American architect to study at the École des Beaux-Arts in Paris, from which he returned, quote, a Frenchified dandy, unquote, according to the architecture historian Moset Broderick. Thorpe attracted considerable attention in 1898 for proposing a revamping of Manhattan's shoreline, then blighted with old sheds and warehouses. His vision included elevated boulevards for walking and bicycling, much like today's High Line along the west side. Wilbur Knowles, who worked with Thorpe from 1892 to 1896, was the lesser known of the two. In 1887, he designed a sprawling and very attractive shingle-style house on Friendly Island in the St. Lawrence River for Edward W. Dewey, a New York clothier. This remains Knowles' signature work. Several of his house designs included round projections, suggesting that he may have taken the lead on McCord Cottage, which featured a huge rounded veranda later glassed in. Of special note is McCord Cottage's busy but elegant hipped roof, shot through with multiple hipped and eyebrow dormers and five tall chimneys crowned with decorative pots. The design also features bay windows on all four sides. In keeping with the shingle style, there is no real attempt at symmetry. Country house design was just beginning, however, to cast a closer eye on symmetrical Europe. After McCord's death, the cottage was offered for sale in 1919 by his son for $80,000. After it sold, a new owner remodeled McCord Cottage as a colonial revival sometime in the 1920s. The biggest challenge, or the biggest change rather, was the removal of the distinctive, very uncolonial, rounded, enclosed, off-centered piazza running along the southern facade and then rounding the southwest corner in favor of a handsome portico porch that now balanced the rear facade and framed a new symmetrical terraced landscape plan. The chimneys were simplified by stripping their 
decorative details in pots. Additionally, two large dormers on the third floor rear facade, one square and the other bayed, were replaced by three small gables that echoed the three on the front facade and brought the house more in line with the symmetrical ideal than popular. A later owner in the 1930s was Alexander J. Horlick, a former mayor of Racine, Wisconsin, and chairman of the Horlick Malted Milk Corporation. His daughter, Jeanette, would marry another Greenwich household products heir, Zalman G. Simmons, Jr., of the Simmons Mattress family. Later still, George Gale Foster, one of the country's largest piano manufacturers under the name of American Piano Company, and then Aeolian American Corporation, inhabited McCord Cottage. Foster died at his winter home in Miami, in 1950. His wife, Marion, retained the Bellhaven House and died there in 1957. McCord Cottage exists today on approximately 1.89 acres, less than the peculiar narrow 3.2-acre strip of land that ran outside of the park's boundaries, running parallel to the rear yards of the lots on the north side of Bush Avenue all the way down to the top of Meadowood Drive. That strip of land contained a carriage house, cottage, and free standing bowling alley. The carriage house still exists as a single-family home accessed by Mercia Lane. The main house has been extensively renovated and enlarged with a hip-roofed garage addition and enhanced by a swimming pool, but otherwise appears much as it did in the Roaring Twenties. On November 3rd, 1911, the people of Greenwich learned about the creation of a quote-unquote beautiful mausoleum. It was erected for William H. McCord in Putnam Cemetery by Lazari and Barton of Woodlawn. Now, of course, we know about um, uh, William McCord through McCord Cottage in Belhaven. After he died, this is a story about the mausoleum that was constructed for him and his family. A large mausoleum is now nearing completion on the plot of William H. McCord in Putnam Cemetery. The building will stand immediately in front of the large white marble tomb erected last year by Mrs. A. A. Anderson, facing nearly east. Now, I should cut in here and mention that that large mausoleum or tomb that I just mentioned is Elizabeth Milbank Anderson's. The architecture is of Grecian Doric order, Three steps had to uh, be up to the entrance, and on the top step of a platform stands four massive fluted columns. These columns form a portico that extends in front of the center of the building. A wing is built out, one on each side, the walls and roof bound into the side walls of the central part, and proportions given a pleasing effect to the general contour of the building. Each of these wings provides space for 15 catacombs, making 30 in all. A noticeable feature of the building is its thick, solid walls and large blocks of granite, binding every part together. Each or three large stones form the entire roof, each stone measuring about 21 feet in length and measuring about 12 tons, while the joints of the roof are housed into each other, making them proof against leakage. The catacombs are formed with Pennsylvania slate. All interior walls, ceiling, and catacomb fronts are faced with polished pink marble of different shades from Knoxville, Tennessee. At the rear of the auditorium will be placed an art 
curved glass window protected on the outside by heavy polished plate glass, these two glasses being further protected by a bronze grille of classic design. The art glass was furnished by the Tiffany Studios, and yes, that would be the Lewis Comfort Tiffany Studios in New York. At the entrance to the tomb, the story continues, heavy double bronze doors will be securely bolted into the granite jams. The granite is of light gray color of fine quality from quarries at Bear, uh, Bear Vermont. Sorry. The Lazari and Barton uh, Company of Woodlawn, New York City, are the designers and contractors. This is the fourth mausoleum this company has built in the Putnam Cemetery. On the December 31st, 2023 show, uh, that was the New Year's Eve show, I, I featured um, a segment about Judge Frederick Hubbard and the uh, his history of you know, old town halls or former town halls that existed uh, in Greenwich. I have a follow-up to uh, to this. Um, it is another uh, article that uh, appeared, in this case, in the Greenwich News and Graphic on January 18, 1924, so just about a century ago. And it's a, its title is Reminiscence of Fire. Judge Hubbard tells how Town Hall burned in 1874. Now, the town hall that we are referring to in this particular case is the one that was located for many, many, many years where the Soldiers Monument is today, just opposite the Second Congregational Church at the intersection of East Putnam Avenue and Maple Avenue. Uh, and um, and so you, if you drive up Maple Avenue, taking that, um, uh, that left turn, um, heading up uh, toward Coffee for Good at the um, Solomon Mead House or uh, whatever, you will see the uh, Soldiers Monument. There was a town hall there uh, for um, many generations. And um, and so the illustrious Judge Frederick A. Hubbard wrote a column about uh, how um, it uh, burned down in 1874. And on this occasion, I would like to share that with you. The illusion in the issue of the news and graphic of January 4th of the Town Hall of 1835 has brought a number of letters asking for more light on the burning of that building. One letter from Hartford asks very pointedly how it is known that a tramp was the incendiary. Other correspondents are more general in their demands for information. Judge Hubbard continues, Since a new generation has arisen in 50 years, it is quite natural that a building so prominent as the town hall should create interest in those who never saw it. There still remain, however, in many in town many people who were familiar with it in their youth and middle life. They will recognize it in the above drawing. The drawing was made by a mechanical engineer who had sufficient data of its construction, such as pitch of roof, length of posts, ground dimensions, and number and location of windows to ensure absolute accuracy. The building stood where the soldier's monument now stands. In front of it, at the junction of the roads, stood the town signpost. It was the center of public activities, but as a public hall, it was very undesirable, and during the Civil War, many lectures were in the con were in the Congregational Church. I just lost my place. Sorry about that. Um, and uh, much against the wishes of those who yielded to such use of the church because there was no other suitable place. As a courtroom, it was, in those days, much well-managed and much better than the Aaron P. Ferris Building on Greenwich Avenue, which was used after 1873. The bench for the Justice of the Peace was elevated, and in front of it was 
an enclosure half-circular in form which was occupied by the lawyers gathered around a long table. There was a regular witness stand at the left of the justice. Here Gideon Close presided for a number of years, and the lawyers who appeared before him were men eminent in their profession. In these days, when cases are quickly and informally disposed of in the lower courts, it seems scarcely credible that such men as Calvin G. Child, U.S. District Attorney, Justice or Julius P. Curtis, Colonel H. W. R. Hoyt, Samuel Fessenden, Edwin R. L. Schofield, Joshua B. Ferris, and James H. Olmsted, the last two state's attorneys, should devote much time to cases before a justice of the peace. But in those days, there was much more litigation than at the present time. Indeed, there was all the lawyers had to do. Real estate was inactive, money was often loaned without the security of a mortgage, and corporations were scarce. Therefore, the lawyers expected to make the most of every case. A demurrer or a default resulting in an appeal to the county court or the superior court was never considered. The evidence was all taken in longhand at the superior court's clerk's office, furnishing blank books for the purpose, and a case was often drawn out for weeks, ex exciting the interest and often the prejudices of the community. The Ford Barn burning case may be cited as one of those cases, which was before Justice Close for several weeks, but not daily, as was the William Wallace poisoning case. Mr. Wallace, the father of the railroad official, was the superintendent for William M. Tweed at this place called Linwood. Another man, employed by Mr. Tweed, it was alleged, coveted the place and pat uh, Croton oil for Mr. Wallace's coffee can, but not a sufficient quantity to kill him. Oh, my God. There were also many trials in which the oyster men were interested, for there were poachers in those days who often defended themselves by the plea that, that night had overtaken them and that possibly they had dredged over the line a little. Oh, dear. And when the legislature, at the instance of the aristocratic oyster planters, as the poachers called them, had a law enacted prohibiting anyone from dredging oysters after sunset, the Supreme Court promptly declared the law unconstitutional and no more reasonable than to prevent a man from digging potatoes on his own land by moonlight. The ladies of the ancient Stilson Benevolent Society decorated the old hall every August for their midsummer fair, and an occasional uh, traveling show or amateur theatricals or, uh, uh, or black minstrels filled it to the doors. The cellar contained a lockup, seldom used except as a menace to bad boys. The single entrance to the hall was through double doors with a lock as large as a stove live. A lid, and a great brass key, now in the Bruce Museum, which was almost a burden to the little old janitor, Billy Trumbull. <laughs> An immense stove stone step in front of the doors, that was worn smooth by the passage of many feet, was a popular noon lounging place for the Academy Boys. That would be the Greenwich Academy Boys. Back of this stone, beneath the oaken sill, the fire started. A cast-off woolen coat saturated with kerosene oil and littered with shavings was stuffed under the sill at three o'clock in the afternoon of October 15, 1874. 
How do you know that, says the letter from Hartford? Possibly it is not a fact, but there are so many concurrent facts connected with it that are at least worthy of recital, that the reader may form his own conclusions. A town official long since deceased told the story 50 years ago, and it follows substantially as it was published at that time. It will be noticed that the tramp in his diary speaks of a number of persons, all but one of whom admitted that they were in the location at the time mentioned by him. The name of the tramp was Alan H. Armitage. He belonged to an excellent Ohio family, but as a boy he was a neglectful, shiftless fellow. His father was a clergyman whose life was rendered miserable more than apprehension of what the boy might do than regret at what he had done. Not that he ever did anything very bad, but his father knew that there was very little good in him and that the bad was sure to come out. When he left Ohio, he was 18 years old. He possessed a fair common school education, but he had no ambition and no money. He was just the material for a tramp, a certain amount of brass he possessed, which had no kin to courage, but shiftlessness and lack of ambition predominated in his character. He arrived in Greenwich afoot in March 1874, and he made his home on a farm in town where he was on an indifferent laborer for small pay and his elder and his cider and tobacco. Sorry. He must have been in the village frequently to enable him to mention so many local characters. Immediately after the fire, he disappeared, and the fact that, or the, the fact with several other circumstances, pointed to him as the incendiary. The town official who had received several letters from his father could get no trace of him for several months, but finally his father reported him as being in jail in one of the middle states, charged with horse-stealing. He claimed that he was innocent, and his father thought he was, but he died suddenly before his trial could take place. Among the effects which came into the possession of the town official from the father was a diary which had in it many interesting pages. It was devoted to the story of his life in Greenwich, and incidentally to the burning of the town hall. After telling of his preparation for the fire, as mentioned above, he wrote of the conflagration as followed, quote, Got my supper at a farmhouse near the depot, where I knew the girl, walked up Greenwich's Avenue, and across Merwin Mead's farm to Second Avenue, now Millbank Avenue. It was as pretty a night as I ever saw. No moon, but quite light. It was about 9.30 I saw Herman Schultz go down at Putnam Avenue while I stood back of an elm tree in front of Fred Mead's. Went to within three feet of me. George Bush and Lawrence Booth both uh, drove up just as I was starting across the street to touch her off. I waited till they got out of the way, and then I went across, struck a match, and threw it into the shavings. I didn't wait, for I knew it was ripe for fire. I went back and got behind Tweed's fence. The fire ran up the doorpost like a squirrel. I could see the glitter of it all the way up the church steeple and on the weather vane. It took ten minutes before she got to going real good. Big Joe Houston came driving along from Coscob way and, and my, how he yelled, fire, fire. Then out came the person, the parson, rather, Mr. Treat, and that Jackson boy who lived with him, and Stephen G. White, Colonel Hoyt, and Abe Meade. 
About that time I thought it was time to get out and I put down across lots. As I was getting over the stone wall into 2nd Avenue, Millbank Avenue, I saw Lou Powers and Vic Russell coming up on a run, so I lay low till they got past, and then I made for Brush Knapp's barn, where I stayed all night. I don't believe anyone cares if I did it. <laughs> the diary had in many things quite amusing and many personal allusions to the use of that period now deceased or tottering grandfathers. The town official agreed to deposit the original diary in the town clerk's office, but he never did, and perhaps on account of the tottering grandfathers, it is well that he failed to keep his promise, and that is signed by Frederick A. Hubbard. Well, it's time for Crimes and Misdemeanors. This is the segment of the show in which we record criminal activity in the history of Greenwich, Connecticut. This one dates from a century ago in January 1924, it was a case that had the police a bit mystified, and when I read this to you, I think that you will be able to figure out why. <laughs> police investigate maid's report of bold entrance at Pinchon House. The residence of George M. Pinchon, New York banker in Field Point Road, was burglarized on Wednesday afternoon about 5 o'clock, according to Mary Leonard, a maid employed in the family who was alone in the house at the time. According to Miss Leonard's story to the police, she answered the door at 4.46 p.m. that day and was confronted by a man and woman standing in the hallway. She described the man as having a black mustache about 5 feet 11 inches in height, wearing a plush coat. The woman was about 5 feet 5 inches in height and wore a long tweed coat and large picture hat. As the maid approached, the man pulled out a revolver and told her to back into a room and not attempt to use the telephone. Miss Leonard did as she was told, the revolver being pointed at her until she had reached the room. A moment later, the telephone rang, but the maid did not dare to answer it. It was 5.15 when Mr. and Mrs. Bert Jules, the butler, and his wife returned to the house, and Miss Leonard, who was in a great state of excitement, told them what had happened. Mr. Jules notified Officer Alfred Long, who is employed by the residents living in the Field Point and Bellhaven section, to do special duty, and he in turn notified the Greenwich Police. With Sergeant James H. Fitzroy, Officer Long made a thorough investigation of the premises. A number of the drawers and bureaus and drawers had been pulled out, but so far as they could find, nothing was missing. The front door was locked when, when Officer Long reached the house, and there was no trace of Jimmy Prince around the windows. Mr. Pinchon has three large dogs on the estate, which run at large, and it would be a difficult matter for any stranger to enter the place day or night unless the dogs were tied. Even Officer Long and Sergeant Fitzroy experienced considerable difficulty when they went to the house as the dogs immediately began to bark and had to be called away by employees of the estate before they could enter. Officer Long, who was patrolling near the Pinchon place, Wednesday afternoon about five o'clock, says he saw no strange persons or even an automobile near there. Mr. and Mrs. Pinchon are out of town at the present time, and it will not be known whether any loot was taken from the house or not until after their return. The police are somewhat mystified by the case. 
Thank you for listening to the 23rd of January, 2024 episode of the Greenwich and Town for All Seasons Show podcast. I'm Jeffrey Bingham Mead, your host. The Greenwich and Town for All Seasons Show podcast was made possible by Alexander Affiliates, Eastern Neurologic Services of New York, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Contact me at Greenwich and Town for All Seasons at gmail.com. Learn more about the show and listen to past shows by going to Greenwich at townforallseasons.blogspot.com. Please look for the show on Facebook, Instagram, and other social media platforms. Our next show is scheduled for Tuesday, the 30th of January, 2024. I look forward to being with you. Take good care. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.